Hello and welcome to Page Parlay. This is the show where we speak to the authors or experts on the work we read on scintillating stories. Today we're speaking to Linda Lappin, the author of Loving Medigliani. Thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really delighted. Let's start at the beginning. How, how long have you been writing? I've always written. There's a, there's a photo of me at the age of four getting out of the tub and going over to the, uh, the typewriter that my father had in his bedroom and typing out a rhyme. I published a book of poetry with an avant-garde press called Kayak when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And uh, I majored in English at college with a creative writing minor. And then I went to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I did uh, an MFA in uh, poetry, but I also studied fiction and tr- literary translation. And actually, one of my teachers was Ian McEwen, who was a very, very young teacher at that day. He was in, they had different writers come in for a semester, and he was there for a year, actually. Uh-huh. So I was very, he was a very young man, but I was even younger. <laughs> and, uh, and after that, I um, got an, a Fulbright grant to come to Italy to participate in a translation workshop that was organized by, um, partly organized by William Weaver. Mm. And that was very exciting. But I stopped writing creatively for five years in that mm-hmm. period. There were translators, but translators weren't treated as writers mm. in Italy at all. You know, they were just sort of secondary. And but you persisted was, in spite of that. Yeah, it's actually my fourth novel, um, Loving mm-hmm. Modigliani. So what drew you to them as subjects? Well, I was actually, I've always been interested in women artists and writers, and particularly in the 1920s. I was writing a novel about the life of Catherine Mansfield. And Catherine Mansfield was a close friend of, Beatrice Hastings, a South African writer, who was uh, Modigliani's mistress at a certain point in his life. And she actually, Mansfield may have crossed paths with Modigliani when she was in Paris at one time. I don't know if there's any record of that or not. Hmm. So um, it was back in, I guess it was 2000, I saw a poster advertising an exhibition in Venice, which was going to have, uh, it had the name Beatrice Hastings along with, it was dedicated to Modigliani and his friends. Mm. So I went to this exhibition to find out, you know, something about the connection of Modigliani and Hastings and what sort of person she was and so on. And the star of the show was actually Jeanne Hebouton because it was the first time in 80 years that her work was being exhibited. Mm. Um, In fact, it probably had never been exhibited before because she died at the age of 21, um, shortly before her 22nd birthday of suicide, after Modigliani died tragically of, of tuberculosis meningitis. And after her death, her, her family, her brother particularly, uh, took all of her artwork and locked it up in his studio. Um, and he was, you know, he loved his sister very much, but um, he, he couldn't stand Modigliani. He didn't let anybody see these artworks. Though some probably did, you know, some were probably lost. Some had had been given to other friends and people while Jeanne was alive. What we know today, most of it is, is it was kept by the brothers. So uh, I saw this exhibition that had these drawings by Hebertone and they were just amazing uh, because they were so advanced. I mean, for this young schoolgirl, I mean, they think of her as a young schoolgirl, but she was actually, she had... Um, developed enormously in the short time she was with Modigliani. And so I 
I found out about her life. I found out about her daughter. Seeing that exhibition is what started it. What was the research process like, especially for somebody who had been hidden away uh, from history for so long? It was actually very fascinating because, um, well, first of all, I, I got all of the things that I could find about Jean Hebleton. And at that point, not very much had been published. And there were uh, memoirs by people in Modigliani's circle who had a few pages dedicated to Jeanne and particularly to the, the last days of Modigliani's life. Mm. Uh, and a lot of it was probably false. Some of it or it was made up or poorly remembered. And, and um, Modigliani's daughter, uh, Jeanne Modigliani, Giovanna, as I call her, because she went by both names, um, did a lot of research and she wrote two books about her parents and so some things came from there and then some information was available in uh, catalogs and in official biographies and unofficial biographies but I was lucky to to speak with the the man who curated the first exhibition of Jean's work when that when it was finally released by the Ebbleton heirs uh, for viewing and he had a lot of information because he'd worked very closely with with um Jean Modigliani the daughter mm. so you know piecing things together tracing things down and then a lot just working on the, the period itself which I was already familiar with because I'd done a lot of work on other women writers and artists in Paris at that time so the the, um, the ambiance and the atmosphere is uh, mm. you know where to go to look for that and photography and old photographs and archives and things like that. It was, it was fascinating to put together. And of course, going to the places where they lived and their studio, not being able to get in, just standing outside. A lot of research did go into it on many different angles. In fact, it took me years to write the book because I started with just a diary mm-hmm. of Jeanne. The diary, I got into a problem because the diary would only end in something terribly tragic because as Modigliani became um, more and more sicker and sicker, um, you know, he's, uh, he kind of deteriorated in other ways too because people with tuberculosis, and the same has often been said of DHL um, mm. as well, they become irascible. And um, it's a disease that affects you emotionally, mm-hmm. gives you, you know, highs and lows and, and so on. And that was true of him as well mm. and their relationship kind of was very difficult for Jean at the end so having to that would just have been a tragedy and I didn't want to write a tragedy so I had to find a way of recombining things or to make it it wouldn't end so badly. Starting with her death is such an in, it's, it's such an intense intro uh, and this this uh in the section you read for the for us there's this almost this beautiful but grotesque funeral procession and it's it's really, but you can also tell that you've done a lot of research, even in just that bit, because you talk about the streets as if you've really been there. You you know you describe the distance from house to house, and it feels it really shows the work you've put in. Well, I I did I live it. Let's say I mean I visited those places all you know over and over and and, mm. and read about and so on. Yeah, but I really wanted to begin with the death so that I didn't have to end with it. That was the point. Mm. you know that to get the worst part over immediately mm-hmm. so that go on from there because I was also interested not only in her life but in her afterlife meaning how her, her how she's been rediscovered and how her uh, reputation has changed and mm. and 
and also the afterlife in a mythical sense of, of her being able to be reunited in, an, in another dimension with Modigliani. That was mm-hmm. important to me too. Mm-hmm. Which is, it, it, it's interesting that you you bring up uh, the fact that suicide was seen and in, in many areas is still seen as a, a, a sinful thing. It's very interesting that you portray this, but you you don't necessarily, as the author, condemn her. And it's really interesting to see this exploration of an existence after life that doesn't entirely conform to uh, relig- religious doctrine. Celtic in a way, and it's kind of, you know, it has different layers, different mythic layers to it, mm-hmm. I think. But yes, suicide was seen as a, something against the law. And of course, a lot of people just disapprove of people trying to kill themselves. They don't have any any sympathy. In Jeanne's case, I think she was so exhausted because she hadn't slept and, you know, just, just a nervous wreck. So she may not even have realized. There was an interesting study about suicide actually in Britain that I read many years ago, which was about how after they stopped using gas that was deadly, you know, when you put your head in the oven, because it wasn't always an easy way, because now the gas that they have isn't deadly, it mm. won't kill you, like, it, you know, uh, suicides just, you know, um, diminished because this easy way of committing suicide was no longer, painless way of committing suicide was no longer so readily available. The time to make a, you know, to reassess what they were doing maybe they wouldn't have done it. And it's such a complex issue as well, because it's so interesting that we still have some of Hebeten's work to, because her family kept it hidden, ironically. Um, so, but why, why was it that, so that's not the case for a lot of female artists and authors and creators. So why did we, why did we lose their work? Well, that's an interesting question because I think you need to examine how women, not just why uh, a, a woman artist's work um, is preserved, but also what happens before, that is the visibility of women in the arts in their own time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, There's always been a tendency for women uh, of discrimination against women artists. I mean, just historically, I mean, in the, um, in the Renaissance, for example, there were women painters. Vasari mm-hmm. mentions... Them, uh, in already in the 16th century and then also in the 17th century but um in renaissance florence for example but they weren't you know they didn't have the same status as men at one point they couldn't even sell their own works they had to be they had you know had to go through a man because in florence women weren't citizens at that point mm. or um they didn't have the same opportunities for an artistic education. In, in France, for example, women were not admitted to the École des de Beaux-Arts until the year before um, Jeanne was born in 1897. That was when women could be allowed. They could get an artistic education before, and they did. There were women painters, you know, always have always been women painters, but it would be either because they were family members of artists who would learn, you know, at home in their father's or brother's workshops, or because they, they were wealthy and they had money to study with privately with um, uh, successful artists, as many women did. Um, so in order to be an artist in Jeanne's time, you had to be, you, know, you either had to have, a, well, prior to Jeanne's time, you either had to be, you know, an, an artist's daughter, or you had to have a lot of money. And they were also excluded historically 
from certain classes, like it was considered unseemly for women to attend live drawing classes that involved nude bodies and things like that. I mean, and this was also in, in Jeanne's time. So, so there were some schools that had all female classes with, with female nudes and others who would admit them, you know. I mean, and so that's sort of been the case. Women have had a kind of a more checkered uh, journey into the, in, into the arts. So as far as what happens to women's art and artworks, well, in some cases, we know that in the, you know, at one point I was reading this other interesting thing that in 19th century guidebooks at one point that before they, you know, even in the 16th century, they'd been talking about some women artists, those names started disappearing from the guidebooks to, to mm -hmm. art. So, I mean, if, um, to Italian art. So if an artwork isn't exhibited, if it is, you know, kept in the basement, if there's, if, um, there's no ongoing interest in the person who produced it, mm. it's going to be forgotten. And that's probably what happened to a lot of women artists, their, their paintings, that they just, there was not that much interest, either because they were women or because the subject matter wasn't of interest. The, the, whoever was curating the exhibitions and the museums and so on didn't think that those particular works would be of interest. Mm. And a more recent example is, um, I was reading there was a... Um, I guess I think it was the National Gallery that recently did, I guess in the last 10 years, an exhibition of Impressionism. And they didn't include Mary Cassatt, who was a very important Impressionist painter. And there was a big, I was in The Guardian, it was an older article, but they were, you know, mentioning that, you know, this is one of the ways that women's artwork disappears, is that it's probably because her subject matter was women with children, which, you know, they, you know, instead of nude bodies or beautiful landscapes or, you know, they whoever curated that exhibition didn't think that that subject matter possibly was of interest to the general public as much as beautiful nude ladies would be or you know and so or or an interesting still life or a haystack or whatever so um that's a way that's one of the ways that women's art disappears is that it doesn't get the intention when they're alive and so when they're dead it ends up in the bottom basement of the museum and whoever sees it again even in Italy, there's one there, ongoing project called "Where Are the Women?" in which they're going into the the crypts and the in the basements of, of all kinds of museums and churches to to find the the lost art by women painters. But mm -hmm. it has been a problem. And Jeanne's work, which wasn't very much, I mean, she didn't produce very much because she was so young. It was it was preserved because her brother didn't let anybody see it, and you know, because it would have been considered just just drawings maybe of a gifted art student but not of a of an artist who we want to know about today so we have this narrative that women didn't affect history it's horrible and fascinating on a slightly cheerier subject than, than disappearing women um what, you worked with serving house press uh, for this particular book what, what was it like working with them well, Serving House Books is a, is a great little press which was founded by two writers, Thomas uh, E. Kennedy, who's the author of a wonderful book called The Copenhagen Quartet, and Walter Cummins, who's a, more of a critic. And um, they were concerned because a lot of their writer friends, um, after having published two or three books for the mainstream publishers, weren't able to get their newer books out because they were older, because... Uh, you know, there's a tremendous emphasis on finding a young writer and, you know, bringing his 
developing its career to a certain point. And then after a certain point, if your previous book hadn't sold as much as they, it's, you know, they, it's really hard to get back in to the mainstream. Um, and so they wanted to create a, a, a publishing house that would give authors complete control over their work in the sense that you have to do the editing yourself or, or with the editors that you choose. There's no in-house editor. You do the publicity yourself with the means that you have, and they, they print the book and, and distribute it mm. and leave you the rights to translation. And they just take the English language rights and you have the rights of translation in, in audio and movies and all that kind of thing, which was a, a pretty good deal, but quite unusual. Mm. And so I opted for that because my book, Loving Modigliani, was with an agent for two years and there was just no, nobody was interested in it at all, which is kind of a shame because I've had a lot of really good feedback from various types of readers. So I think it was just, you know, I was, I was like too old or my other books hadn't done very well or I just wasn't interesting to a, a, um, a big press. Mm-hmm. And so... COVID and everything, I thought, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in bookstores are closing and it's, you know, book events are off the cards and let's just move on and and do it. And I'm very glad that I did. It's interesting that COVID was the thing that pushed you. Uh, Once it has taken a lot of things away from people, but it's also pushed people. Terrible news and the screaming ambulances and the fear and the not knowing and, you know, where are we going to be three weeks from now and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think it's been a good opportunity to any kind of creative pursuit in this time has been a good opportunity to cut off and to shut away from the, the, the horrors that have been going on. Were there challenges that you faced publishing this book during COVID? Yes. And one thing I actually, that was a problem is that the book was written uh, four years ago and it had a part that ended in Venice in 2020. <laughs> and but the Venice Carnival couldn't didn't take place, mm-hmm. so I had to rewrite the ending of it, and it's still you know I, I had to move it ahead into twenty twenty one, and mm-hmm. you know so, but I had to change something in the book because of because of COVID. You can't have book signings or you can't have book events except online, and that's one way you that you really connect with readers and people become interested in your book is through, you know, real con- uh, direct contact with readers, mm-hmm. uh, events at libraries and so on. And that's not been possible. Mm-hmm. And also um, a lot of just delayed things like delayed uh, shipments of books and delayed uh, paperwork. And it, it's not been easy in that regard. That, for example, the book was supposed to be, handled also by Ingram, which is the major distributor, and so that it could be available to libraries and physical bookstores. And, and some there was some kind of mix-up, and it was supposed to be ready with, at the maximum of eight weeks, but instead it turned into something like 20 weeks. I couldn't really do a, a, an online launch if there was no place to get the book except Amazon, because lots of people don't want to buy from Amazon. So. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I'm I'm really glad that we could have you on uh, on the podcast so that we can, because your book is so lovely, and I really hope that people listen to this podcast and think, yes, I'm going to check it out because, trust me, it's a wonderful piece of reading, and I and I would I would highly highly recommend it. Do you think that this book has message has a message for modern readers? Well, it's kind of a timeless message, really. Um, on the one hand, the 1920s is an era that really interests me because it was an era of experimentation, not only in 
art, but in literature, but also in people's lifestyles. Mm. Uh, and um, and when I came of age, which was the 1970s, it was a kind of rebirth of that same kind of thing. And I think now we're going through a similar thing again. I think the message of Jean Hebeturn's life is that she desired that her, you know, her her art should be life and that life should be art. I mean, this, and I think a lot of people also, that's a, a thing that many of us feel. Just this search for an ideal. There's a pattern in the book as there is in a lot of my books actually deal in some way with the underworld. Mm. That is, maybe the underworld is illness or maybe it's the Etruscan tombs descending into the depths and then coming out and, and finding yourself again and anew at the end of that um, journey. So mm. I think that's a kind of a universal message. Do you have any tips for aspiring writers of any age believe in your story and give it your all don't be afraid to invest in it invest time invest in improving your skills by studying read as much as you can very diverse things that are different from what you write um Try to find somebody who will read your work and who will be supportive but also critical. But don't, uh, you know, don't be afraid to ignore what they say if you don't agree. Don't rush into publication. Don't be afraid to finish a project. Don't work on the same thing for a long time and then, you know, just keep going over it and over it. Allow yourself to move on to something different. Mm. And don't under underestimate what a good editor can do can help you. Uh, so it's not necessarily the talent that's lacking in the in the small press writer or the or the independent writer or the self published writer. It's the fact that you don't have that you know, machinery behind you to make it as perfect as you can. But if even so, you have to try mm -hmm. and don't give up. Oh. That's a very positive message. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so delighted. If our listeners would like to hear or, or read more from you, is, is there somewhere, somewhere you'd like, uh, like them to go? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.lindalappen.net. Well, um, I would highly recommend that everyone do that um, and read more of Linda's absolutely lovely work. Um, and thank you again for speaking with us, Linda. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. You can see more of Linda's work on her website. I'll provide a link to the website in the show notes. If you have a story you'd like us to read or a topic you'd like us to cover, then contact us on Facebook or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.